Yes, we'll continue in First John or begin First John in earnest today as we uh, began with an intro last week. And uh, let's pray as we seek God's word for his wisdom. Father, we praise you for your life giving word. May it work in us today that which we see and know Christ through it. Help us to lay aside distractions this morning that are in our mind and the cares of the world that are in our heart to spend just a few minutes resting on Christ as we find him in his word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may your word confirm our faith and bring us yet again to the joy of the eternal fellowship. It's on the merits of Christ we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, first John one, one through four, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. This is God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Last week we saw, or at least I hope we saw, the overarching purpose of 1 John is that those who believe in Jesus Christ may know that we have eternal life. That we may know that we, that we have eternal life. And today I want to begin with the question, what is eternal life? In this passage we will see that eternal life is much more than just avoiding eternal hellfire or getting to heaven. It is those things, of course, but it's much more. We'll see that eternal life is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And that eternal life means joyous fellowship with God and with his people. And not just a future joyous fellowship, but eternal life in one sense begins now in those things. So the first point that I want to draw your attention to this morning is simply that Jesus is eternal life. The center and heart of this passage is life, the word life. And that which John interacted with in verse 1 is, he says, concerning the word of life. And in verse 2, it was the life that was made manifest to which they testify. And again in verse 2, it is the eternal life which they proclaim that was with the Father and is now made manifest to them. So life is John's subject in this passage. What we notice immediately in verse 1 is that it sounds very much like the beginning of another of John's books. 
the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, that which was from the beginning concerning the Word of life. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word of life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Scholars go back and forth on the question of to what degree the word logos or word in this passage is personal like it is in the, in the beginning of John. Um, or perhaps it's just that, that John here is concentrating on the word of life. In other words, the message of life. Whichever way you go on that, beyond all shadow of doubt, the word life is personified. The word life is referring to a person in this passage, namely the person of Jesus. The life, he says in verse 2, was with the Father and manifested at a point in time. And if we take verse 4 as a, as a hint, this life was in eternal fellowship with the Father before His manifestation. And it's the fellowship that we're brought into through believing the Gospel. We tend to talk about the question, are you saved or have you been saved? Quite a bit. Do you have eternal life? Do you, have you gained everlasting life? By which we mean something like, have you taken, or we can mean something like, have you taken the necessary steps and believed the necessary set of truths about Jesus to, to avoid hell and to go to heaven? That's, that's what we can mean when we say, are you saved? Of course, salvation is certainly not less than those things, but John presents us with a really rich and personal view of this idea of eternal life. Jesus does not just grant us eternal life. He is eternal life. This is a lesson that John learned from Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The verse, verse John 5.12 will come up many times through this series because I think it is perhaps the most direct summary proposition of the book and because I think it is the most foundational and bedrock root of assurance perhaps in all of Scripture, and that is, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Of course, as we go along, we'll need to spend more time exploring the question, what does it mean to have the Son? But for now, for our purposes, we should take note that the the reason that whoever has the Son has life is because the Son is life itself. It's ingrained within our fallen souls from the time we are born that that we need a set of instructions to follow so that we might attain uh, salvation or eternal life or or, uh, nirvana or higher knowledge or escape from the prison of the material flesh or or whatever it may be. We, We think we need to a set of instructions to work our way toward that 
because we know there's something wrong with us and there's something wrong with the world. And we need saved. We need salvation from, from whatever that thing is. And there's no shortage of gurus who will give us those sets of instructions and guide us on the way to salvation. But Jesus is distinct because Jesus is not a guru guiding us on the path toward eternal life. He is eternal life. The Bible sees our fundamental problem and the problem with the world as sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death in contrast to life here in this passage. And so what a vibrant, life-giving event, the arrival, the manifestation, the revelation of Jesus Christ is that the eternal life would come and, and in flesh, he who was with the Father and enter this world of death and by revealing himself to the world, reveal eternal life in the world. So the first point then is that Jesus is eternal life. Next we see how he made himself known and how he continues to make himself known to us. And the second point, eternal life was revealed to witnesses. Eternal life was revealed to witnesses. In verse 2, the life is called eternal life. Um, and eternal is a word that we tend to use to mean uh, forever. It, it will go on and on without end, which it, it can mean that depending on the context. But here I think it's more a reference to the infinitude and therefore divinity of Jesus. The, the life is eternal in its essence. Before the world began, the life was in the presence of the Father, he says in verse 2. And John puts it this way, the very beginning, that which was from the beginning. His opening assertion about the life is that it was from the beginning. This eternal life was not a set of doctrines that emerged with the birth of, of a guru or a new school of thought. This eternal life is the same. He is eternally consistent. It is not a new solution to the human problem conjured in the minds of the apostles or arriving at the birth of this man named Jesus. No, it was from the beginning. And he who was from the beginning stooped, he entered into time in flesh and blood to manifest, to reveal the eternal life to us. As we talked about last week, kind of the issue was the, the proto-Gnosticism going on, the dualism, flesh is bad, material is bad, spirit is good. And so this whole idea that, that Jesus, the eternal one who is from the beginning, Arrives and he arrives in human flesh is, of course, offensive to these proto-Gnostics and a difficult doctrine to swallow. And, and for them, Jesus, either he had to be flesh and blood, human with great insight and spiritual wisdom, or he was divine and he revealed himself in human form, but not truly human. Um, one, one set of teachings about Jesus during this, the, the Gnostic period is known as docetism. 
Um, docetism coming from the Greek word meaning to seem. To seem. So the, the idea was that Jesus seemed to have a human body. But it was, it was an apparition. It was a phantom. As one preacher put it, he walked on the beach on the shores of Galilee, but he left no footprints as he walked. But John says, to the contrary, we spent time with this man. That which was from the beginning, we heard him. We listened to him teach us for years. And his detractors may retort, well, that's no big deal. An apparition, we can hear an apparition. Okay, well, we saw him. We saw him with our own eyes. Okay, apparitions may be seen. And John adds, we, we saw him with our eyes and we looked upon him. And this word looked upon means something like to have an intent look at something, to take something in which one's eyes with implication that one is especially impressed. Or another definition of august things and persons that are looked on with admiration or one more. Um, to, be, to behold intelligently as to grasp the meaning and significance of that which comes within our vision. So it's more than just seeing with the eyes, but it's beholding, it's laying hold of the substance of something. So John says, not only did we see him, but we studied him, we searched him out, we beheld him, and we got a grip on who Jesus really was. Each empirical experience of Jesus is, is, in this passage, progressively more and more convincing. We heard him, we saw him, we, we grasped his significance, and not only that, now John says, we touched him. We touched the eternal life. We saw his hands inside, and, and remember when Thomas put his fingers on his hands and in his side, we were there when he made fish for us and we ate fish with him for breakfast. And I leaned against his shoulder when I asked him who was going to betray him. I touched the eternal life. John is insisting in verse, verse 1 here, contra dualism, the eternal preexistent one became flesh and dwelt among them and he is witness to it that Jesus Christ is flesh and blood. Now, why did Jesus make himself known to his disciples in this way? It's because he would commission them as witnesses in the world. John uses two verbs here to describe what they do with this revelation. First, here in verse 2, we testify to it. And second, we proclaim it to you. Namely, they, they proclaim the eternal life, or, or simply they proclaim Jesus. To testify is to serve as a witness of something. They're not just sharing theories or teachings or ideas. They are like witnesses on the witness stand, under oath, speaking to what they have experienced. And to proclaim is, is to preach, conviction verbalized, to speak authoritatively and publicly to make known the truth. And it doesn't have to be behind a pulpit or on a street corner because John's calling this letter proclamation. It's 
authoritative, public, verbalized truth. You notice John keeps using the word we in this passage as well. It may be that he's talking about he and some who are in his company who labor to spread the gospel, but more likely he's referring to the apostolic band, to the disciples who were witnesses, who lived with Jesus, who were commissioned by Jesus. And it's interesting in all probability, especially if, as we talked about last week, this book was written quite late in the first century. Most, if not all, of the apostles were dead. And yet he was saying, we. Because John speaks of his authority in a collective manner. Because their testimony stands as one. The apostolic witness. In speaking about uh, testing the spirits, which in, in 1 John 4 is talking about testing the truth, the validity of teachers. John says plainly in 1 John 4, 5 and 6, they, that means the false teachers, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of the truth, of truth and the spirit of error. Do they listen to the apostles? It's a cut and dried system for determining who is true and who is false. I think this is the first and perhaps most foundational answer to the question, what does it mean to have the Son? How do I know I have eternal life? Well, there's several answers that we'll end up going through, but one of the most foundational and basic is this clean break, this clean objective test. Is the gospel you believe apostolic? Is what you believe what's taught in the Bible by the apostles? Uh, We were talking the other day about Mormons and the difficulty in talking to Mormons is, is you can kind of biblically get them into a corner, but they always have this little escape hatch called the burning in the bosom. Um, From Doctrine and Covenants, it says, Behold, I say to you that you must study it out in your own mind. Then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. Right, so you get them into a corner and they, they say, yeah, but I have felt the burning in the bosom. I know Mormonism is true. And sadly, for many Christians, uh, uh, similar experiences serve as a similar litmus test, as the root and ground of their confidence that they have eternal life. The, uh, a great spiritual high at camp, a great a series of, of morning devotions, uh, a conference, some, some spiritual high. For John, in this book, and we see it here in this passage as well, the apostolicity of the gospel being preached is one of the primary dividing lines between a true and saving message that brings life on the one hand and the spirit of error which places people outside of the eternal divine fellowship on the other. Is the gospel we believe what the apostles taught us about Jesus? 
And this is the beauty of this, this second point, that eternal life was revealed to witnesses because it adds an objectivity to our quest to know that we have eternal life. Do I believe what the Bible says? This is a much better question to ask than, do I feel saved? Which feelings go like this. I have found that that many Christians struggling with assurance affirm that they do indeed believe themselves to be sinners, that they have identified Jesus to be the solution to that problem, and that they have trusted in it for themselves But yet they are still waiting for some kind of confirming experience, some kind of burning in the bosom, a radical, perhaps immediate transformation of life and immediate sanctification or some spiritual high. It's not to say that that believing the gospel doesn't transform our lives. In fact, we'll see John insists on it in first John. But those things are not the foundation of our assurance. Jesus, as offered to us in the biblical gospel, is the foundation of our assurance. If you have the Son, you have life. And it's through that gospel that we enter into the divine communion, the eternal fellowship. That's point number three, that we enter into eternal fellowship by faith in the gospel. We enter into eternal fellowship by faith in the gospel. He says in verse 3, that, w- that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I noticed, uh, noted last week that this verse is one of the purpose statements of 1 John. We proclaim these things to you so that you may have fellowship. That's why they're proclaiming them. Just briefly, we should note the consistency here with what I've already been saying, that the proclamation of Christ is the point of the wedge that is driven between those who have fellowship and those who are outside of fellowship. The, the proclamation is the means by which we enjoy fellowship. And without it, we would not have it. I mentioned before that John, in my mind, he thinks like this. But I, I don't. I think like this. So let, let me try to just lay this out for you a little bit uh, more in a temporal and order. Um, that there are three relationships described here. Or three stages of fellowship. First, the person who is described here as eternal life itself, who is from the beginning, he was with the Father before he was revealed. That's the first relationship. The relationship between the Father and the Son. That's the first fellowship. The second fellowship, the life, was revealed to witnesses. This is the second relationship. The witnesses have been brought into the divine fellowship that existed between Father and Son before the world began. And that's why John says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the second fellowship. You see the same uh, progression, by the way, in in John 17 in the, the priestly prayer. 
Um, the third fellowship is now John is writing to Christians who in some sense, they seem to be wrestling with the question of who is Jesus and what is it to be a Christian? And John is saying our preaching is, is the wedge. We proclaim him to you so that you may have fellowship with us and more importantly with the Father and the Son too. And if that's true, the converse is also true. Those who will not listen do not have fellowship. So this is the third uh, fellowship, third relationship, that people who have never seen Christ in the flesh are brought into the divine fellowship that the apostles share with Christ and the Father. They're brought in to that fellowship through the preaching of the gospel of the apostles. This brings us back to the question then of what is eternal life? We should be delighted that our salvation goes beyond the the kind of, uh, whew, I'm glad I don't have to go to hell now kind of mentality that we have sometimes. But that salvation is much more than that. It's tied up with fellowship here, human and divine fellowship. When we believe the gospel, we have the Son. We have eternal life. A life that flourished in eternal triune fellowship with the Father from all eternity. And we sinners, undeserving sinners, are made to share in that eternal communion. John Owen says in uh, Communion with God, And truly for sinners to have fellowship with God, the infinitely holy God, is an astonishing dispensation. Note here, it's not just a a personal life that's breathed into us. It's not a merely vertical relationship. But John says those who hear the proclamation of Christ are likewise brought into fellowship with the witnesses, with the, the apostolic preachers. In other words, brought into fellowship with God's people as well. This is one of the many things I just love about the creeds, the the Apostles' Creed, for example, not written by the Apostles, but very early saints thought it would be good to define what is the faith once for all delivered? What is the apostolic gospel? And of course, then later creeds, Nicene, Chalcedonian creeds, um, the the Athanasian Creed that we read this morning, they flesh that out a little bit more, but these doctrines are the things that unite us with all Christians. Christians from around the world today, as as the, the, the earth has turned, have been saying these creeds through the Lord's Day. And as we recite them, we recite them from with the Christians from so long ago who also recited them. They unite us together in the eternal fellowship. And so we are so privileged to have been brought into this eternal fellowship through the plain preaching of the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, the the fourth point is that this salvation is a great reason for joy. 
It's a great reason to have joy. John adds this second purpose statement already here in verse 4, although I think it's really tied up with the first one, that, that joy and fellowship walk hand in hand. But the purpose is joy in verse 4. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John says in Third John, uh, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children here spiritual children, are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than that. Joy is a word filled with rich connotations, much farther and and richer than just simple the word happiness. But, very simply, it makes John happy to see the saints confirmed in their faith and brought into the eternal fellowship. I am joyful about this. That's why I'm writing to you. The word translated here in the ESV, complete, made complete, is also translated fulfilled or filled up. Um, and I think, I, th- I think of, of every saint added to, to the fellowship as just one more drop in, in a great pail that's being filled up of, of saints confirmed in the faith. And John labels that pail joy. As we'll see through the rest of this book, it is a joy rooted in love because he loves the brethren and he longs to see them confirmed in the knowledge of eternal life. If you have certain translations, if you have a New King James or or King James, uh, your translation may read your joy instead of our joy, which is a, a textual question. But either way, it's true. I want you to have joy and I'm going to have joy. We are made joyous as we enter into the fellowship of God and of His saints. To that point, I'll just leave you with a a comment from Calvin I thought was particularly helpful. He says, He shows first that life has been exhibited to us in Christ, which as it is an incomparable good, ought to rouse and inflame all our powers with a marvelous desire for it and with the love of it. It is said indeed in a few and plain words that life is manifested. But if we consider how miserable and horrible a condition death is and also what is the great kingdom and glory of immortality, we shall perceive that there is something here more magnificent than what can be expressed in any words. Amen.